I want you to all think of a parent or a grandparent uh, or a caregiver that's been influential in your life. And I want you to just take a moment and try to recollect the greatest lesson that that parent or grandparent or caregiver imparted onto you. And as you privately think about that great lesson that that role model taught to you, I'll just tell you a quick story. Uh, my father graduated from a small college in the middle of Illinois. He went into the military, and when he was done with his service time, uh, he went to Chicago to start his career as an accountant. And there were ups and there were downs, uh, but around the early 90s, there was a little bit of an economic downturn. He found himself unemployed, and for a really rough year or two, in order to uh, keep our house and make ends meet, he took two jobs outside of his profession. He would work in a factory during the day, and then he would get up super early in the morning and go out and deliver newspapers. And my mom had two jobs at that time as well. You know, the market would kind of go back up again. He would resume his career, and uh, he ended up retiring as a very distinguished professor of business uh, from a university there in Chicago. But I tell that story because when I think back to the greatest lesson that my father taught to me, you know, I don't think of those awards that he uh, won at the end of his uh, academic career. I think about those hard, gritty times when he smelled like newspaper and was always tired and worked in a factory. And as you think about the lesson that came into your mind from an influential role model in your life, I'm guessing that probably for half of the people in this room, it was a lesson that came during a hard time. You know, we always prefer the easy times, but that's not always when God is the most at work in our life. And that's true in the Bible as well. The Bible is filled with times in the history of God's people when really uncomfortable things occur. And when we're just kind of reading through our Bible in a year or going onto iTunes to pick a sermon to listen to, we don't gravitate towards the hard things, right? We gravitate towards the Proverbs and the Psalms and the gospel stories of God's grace. But of course, the Bible is filled with lessons that God teaches his people, even in the times of discomfort and hardship. Uh, starting last week and stretching for two weeks after this, uh, we're in a sermon series called How God Uses Disaster, Discomfort, and Hardship. And each of these four Sundays, we're taking uh, one of the books in the Old Testament, one of the prophets, when God does something really hard in the lives of the people of Israel. And, uh, of course, we're going to extract what God was trying to teach his people then, and then from that, we're going to try to learn what God is speaking into our lives as modern believers as well. This past week, our country has experienced ethnic and racial strife unlike anything any of us have seen since probably the 1960s for those who go back uh, and can remember those times. So this morning, we, this, uh, this afternoon, this evening, we turn our attention to the book of Obadiah, uh, which is where God teaches his people some key lessons, even in the midst of racial and ethnic strife. Our outline will be as follows. In section one, we're going to talk very quickly about why you've never heard a sermon on the book of Obadiah. <laughs> section two, we're going to talk about how we can uncover the context and what's happening 
in this very short book. And in section three, we're going to talk about so what, because we don't come to church to just get more information. We come to church to hear what, what God wants to speak into our modern lives through his ancient wisdom. So uh, let's get started and let's just talk really briefly about why, if we're honest, none of us know very much about the book of Obadiah. The first reason is it's very short. It's actually, actually only 21 verses. There is a book in the Old Testament that's only 21 verses long. It's Obadiah. And, uh, and that's why it's not readily accessible and, and read and uh, talked about by a lot of people. The second reason why we don't know a lot about Obadiah and hear a lot of sermons about it is because of its genre. That's a kind of an a academic word, but, but genre just means that there's different styles of writing. If you guys read uh, the newspaper or if you open up a Roman, romance novel, you're going to have different expectations for those different things that you're reading because they're different genres. They're written with different purposes. They're written with different styles. And as we read through the Bible, there's probably at least a dozen different genres which should form the way that we think about and read that text. And uh, the genre of Obadiah is a judgment poem. It's prophecy. And so that's not easy to connect with for us as modern audiences. So it gets overlooked and skipped quite a bit. Uh, one of the commentaries that I was studying this week offered this paragraph about what the genre of uh, this book is all about. It says, To God's people still devastated from a Babylonian invasion in 587 B.C., they were few in numbers and they were confined to a pitiful, a pitiful, pitiful fragment hemmed in by foreign squatters on territory that was traditionally their own. And here in Obadiah, he brings divine assurance that God has not forgotten his people's plight and he will intervene to address their situation. So we can kind of start to understand what, what Obadiah is talking about and it, it doesn't always connect with where we're at today in 2020. And uh, finally, you know, it's really important when we read the Bible, if we want to understand it and apply it, that we understand the tone because we speak with different tone. Uh, we write with different tone and uh, it's important to understand the meaning to, uh, to draw out what the tone is. The best that I could explain what the tone of Obadiah is is uh, back when I was in college, one of the most uh, popular programs on TV was professional wrestling. And maybe as you guys were flipping the channels, you came across it briefly. And only half of that hour was actually filled up with wrestling matches. And the other half of the hour was, was what? It's the interviews. So you got this big, sweaty, greased-up guy, and, and the camera's right on him, and he's like, uh, you know, guess what, uh, John Johnson or whoever the wrestler is, uh, you only beat me because you cheated when the ref wasn't looking, and next Wednesday at the Portland Civic Center, I'm going to hit you with every steel chair that's not bolted down in that stadium, right? And, and the reason why they do that is because they want the people to get intrigued enough to go out and buy a ticket and see the resolution of that conflict uh, when, when the wrestling comes to their neighborhood. Uh, professional wrestling is a soap opera on steroids, right? <laughs> and uh, if you just kind of picture the tone of those interviews, that's the tone of the book of Obadiah. Obadiah the prophet is standing up with a puffed up chest and he's talking about this injustice that the Israelites have uh, incurred and he's promising that there's going to be revenge. He's shouting that there's going to be a punishment to the Edomites uh, who wronged God's people. 
So let's move on here to section two. And uh, even though it's only 21 verses, it's kind of abstract and hard to figure out what it is that's being talked about here. So let me just give a little bit of guidance. And I think really quickly we can all be on the same page as to what's happening here and why it's relevant for us as a modern audience. Um, I hope you've had a chance to stick your finger here in the book of uh, Obadiah. And uh, the historical event that's happened here uh, is that Jerusalem has been invaded by Babylon. Uh, sometimes that's a word for different uh, foreign invaders. So a foreign invader has come into Israel and they've attacked Jerusalem. It talks about that here in uh, verses 10 and 11. Uh, it says, Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you'll be covered with shame. You'll be destroyed forever. You can kind of see the tone there. And on the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. So the historical event that's happened here is that the, the foreign invaders, the Babylonians, they've come into Israel and they've destroyed Jerusalem. They've taken all the valuable things and they now control God's holy city. But that's not really the conflict that Obadiah is all about. Because the Edomites were kind of these relatives of the Jews. If you go back to the book of Genesis, Abraham had these two sons, Jacob and Esau. I'm sure you guys have heard that story before. And uh, the Edomites are all the relatives of Esau, and the, the Israelites are all the relatives of Jacob. And so you would think that these close relatives, the Edomites, when Jerusalem was, in, was attacked, you would have thought that the, the Edomites would come down and aid their close relatives. But instead, they waited until the fighting was over. They came down, and instead of helping the Israelites, they carried off the rest of the valuables uh, when their, their brothers, when their closely ethnically related uh, relatives were most vulnerable. Talks about that there in verses 11 uh, through 14. Now you can maybe start to pick out some of the meaning of this. It says, On the day that you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune or rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not have marched through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. And it goes on there to talk about how the Israelites thought that the Edomites would come to their aid, but not only did they not help, they came down and they exploited them even worse. I say this with all sensitivity, but uh, this, uh, from my uh, vantage point, it seems like a mostly white church. And um, our African-American Christian brothers and sisters just have a lot of ethnic enmity towards the white church at this time. You can kind of look at this story and you can understand that even if we haven't overtly done anything to hurt them, when they felt exploited, when they felt in need, perhaps we haven't come to their aid as they would have hoped for, as we would have hoped for if we were in a similar situation. It's not a perfect comparison, but what we can say is that the book of Obadiah is written to God's people, reminding us 
that even racial and ethnic strife is something that God works through. And I think in this moment, we all need the reminder that when we turn on the news and when we see rioting in the cities and when things are not how we would want them to be, it doesn't mean that God has lost control. It doesn't mean that God won't keep his promises because the book of Obadiah reminds us that God works in hard things, even hard things like racial and ethnic strife. This is the thing that excites me the most about the book of Obadiah. I don't know the technical term for it, but I want to tell you something really unique about the Hebrew language. When you write out the Hebrew language like the book of Obadiah was written in, I don't know if you guys know this, but you don't write out vowels. The Hebrew language has vowels, but you don't write them out. It made sophomore year of, cemetery, of uh, seminary really tough for me, right? Like that's, that's hard to figure out that you have to write things out, but you, you have to figure out what the words mean even without the vowels. But this allows the writers to do some really profound and creative things. I want you guys, if you have a piece of paper uh, and a pen, to write down these three letters. P-P-L. All right? Three letters, no vowels. P-P-L. If you add an A and an E, you can turn that into apple. Right? If you add an E and an O and an E at the end, you can turn it into people. So the same consonants can actually become different words based on the vowels that are put within them. And, and, and you figure that out based on the context of what the author is writing. And what the Hebrew writers do so brilliantly is they use that technique to put words that could go either way. And they could mean two different things. And this is used so brilliantly in the book of uh, Obadiah because the consonants that are used for the Edomites... Remember, those are the villains in the story. Those are the antagonists. Those are the people that should have come down and helped the Israelites. Those are the people that were ethnically insensitive and oppressive to the Israelites. That consonant cluster, that word for the Edomites, it's also the word for human. So let's think about what that means for a second. As the Israelites are reading the book of Obadiah, as it's read in the temple, as they are recalling this story that happened in history, what, what, what Obadiah is really about is that the Edomites exploited and oppressed the Israelites because of their past grievances. You go back to the story of Jacob and Esau, and Jacob, I don't know how to politely say it in church, but he, he, he tricked Esau. He, he stole something from Esau. And now hundreds of years later, the reason the Edomites are oppressing the Israelites is because of past grievances. They're still mad about what the, the Israelites had done to them hundreds of years earlier. And so one of the, 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 the takeaways of the story is that the Edomites exploit and oppress people because of their past grievances. But of course, what the Hebrew writer is doing so brilliantly is that Edomite is also the same is human. And so the question that comes into our mind is, are you like an Edomite? Do you oppress people unfairly because of past grievances and things that have happened generations ago? And another way that it's used is you read this story and uh, it tells us here in verses uh, 3 and 4 uh, that the Edomites exploited and oppressed people because of their high position and because of their pride. It says, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your homes in the heights. 
and say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down. And uh, what the original audience would have known is that the Edomites lived in the high country. It was a territory that was, was, was just much higher in elevation uh, than the Israelites. And so what, uh, what Obadiah is saying here is that because of their high position, they developed pride looking down on the Israelites, and that caused them uh, to, uh, to have pride, uh, which led them to exploit the Israelites. But, but just like the, the Israelites would have heard this story and they would have said, I can't believe that the uh, Edomites are exploiting us because of their pride. Edomite is also the word for human, and we're supposed to ask ourselves, do we exploit and oppress people because of our high position in pride? And so it's just a beautiful technique that uh, gets you to get all hot and bothered and riled up about something that somebody has done to you before kind of pointing the finger and reminding us that we are guilty of the same things. I hope that was kind of a light bulb moment for you like it was for me this week. And I hope it's just kind of opened your eyes that God is calling us, with everybody that we come across, not to let past grievances color the way that we interact and possibly oppress people and not to let our high position that God has blessed us with to cause us to look down uh, and how we treat others. Let's wrap up here in section three uh, just with another point or two about, about why this is in the Bible. Why did it stay in there? And what is God trying to communicate to us as a modern audience? One of the takeaways I think could be this. The prophet Obadiah is using terrible events that were fueled by ethnic strife to remind his people that God will judge the unjust. You know, sometimes when, uh, when, when our kids do something to each other uh, and they're mad, we try to change the subject and we just want them to forget about it and move on. You, 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 would, you would reason to think that maybe it would be a good idea for Obadiah to not put this in the Bible so they just would have forgotten about what the Edomites did to them. But for some reason, it's in the Bible. And I think the reason is because Obadiah wants to remind God's people that God will judge the unjust. And it talks about that there in verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. I'd like to suggest that one of the things that we can do in this time that we're in right now as God's people is we can remind the oppressed and the exploited that God will bring justice to his people. And so I just want you to think to a moment, think for a moment what that might look like for you personally to lovingly speak into the life of somebody who's been wronged or oppressed with the reminder that God keeps his promises and in places like Obadiah 1, 15 to 18, God promises to judge the unjust. We're not saying we're going to sweep things under the rug. We're saying that God will come and judge the unjust. Another thing that we can take from this is that Obadiah names specific atrocities that the Edomites committed against the Israelites. If you have some time there to read verses 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, he's spelling out specific horrible things that the Edomites did to the Israelites. And I think he does this to increase their desire to see the day of the Lord. We'll we'll talk about that a little bit each week. The day of the Lord is this future time when God's fulfillment of his promises and justice comes. 
I think we can tell from the news from the last couple of days, from the last few weeks, that we live in a country that's hoping for fullness. It's hoping for equality. It's hoping for things that some take for granted and other people don't experience. And what we as God's people can say, what we have a platform to say is that God promises that one day, the day of the Lord, will bring the fulfillment of his promises and the justice that we all long for. We as Christians can say, we look forward to that. Uh, And that's something that we can all put our hope into. Let me wrap up with this final thought. In verse 19, one of the things that it says here at the conclusion of this book is that uh, God's people will uh, possess Gilead. And uh, this is a little bit of a sidetrack, but uh, if you go all the way back to uh, the book of Joshua, when God's people have taken over the promised land, uh, there's like five or six really boring chapters where it's just who gets what land. But in Joshua chapter 20, there's this beautiful part. It's called uh, the City of Refuge. And for all of the tribes, they're supposed to take a few cities throughout the territories and set up these uh, specific cities as something called the City of Refuge. It's a place with gates. It's a place where somebody who's been falsely accused, it's a, it's a place where even somebody who's committed wrongdoing can come into the City of Refuge and get fair judgment. And so in verse 19, when, when Obadiah is wrapping up this book and he says one day the Benjamites will resume and uh, refill the city of Gilead, what it's saying is that God's story includes the, the resumption of justice. Uh, some people say that uh, one of our greatest American living novelists is Margaret Robinson. Have you guys ever read the book Gilead? by Margaret Robinson. Anybody here? It's a Pulitzer Prize winning book and uh, she's a, a writing, uh, a professor of writing at a university in Iowa. And so in this novel, she's created this fictional town in Iowa called Gilead. It's a biblical a reference. And there's actually three parts to the story. There's three novels in the series. And in each one of those three books, characters who are displaced, characters who are lost sheep, characters who are prodigal sons and daughters return to this city of Gilead to find the reconciliation and the fullness that they've been looking for their whole life. And that is a beautiful reference to this concept and to this verse that one day we can look forward uh, to God's promises being fulfilled uh, and for us experience uh, that, that city of refuge, that place of justice that we all long for. So in just a moment, the worship team is going to come forward and wrap up our service today. Um, I just kind of want to end with this. Uh, I'm not someone who's political, and I'm not someone that always tries to touch on current events and uh, push the hot-button issues. Uh, I chose to speak uh, on the book of Obadiah like five or six weeks ago, not knowing anything about Obadiah. I don't know if I'd even read it before. And I opened it up Monday morning, just really frustrated with what was going on in the news. You know, some things don't seem like they have merit. Other things just are really convicting. And and, and when I understood what the book of Obadiah was all about, I, I, I just felt comforted. I felt like God was speaking and saying, I work through all things, even ethnic and racial strife. It doesn't mean that I'm not in control. It doesn't mean that I won't keep the promises of Scripture. It just means that I work through all things uh, to get people pointed towards and hopeful 
for the day of the Lord to come. Uh, as we sing this final song, let's not, let's not think about this and process this in the terms of that because God's got it figured out, we can just wash our hands and be done with all these difficult issues. Let's think about it in terms of because God is a God of justice, because God is a God who keeps his promises, that we as his people should enter in to helping these promises become fulfilled. Let's ask God to convict us as to how we can be a part of bringing about reconciliation and bringing about the peace between the brothers and sisters in Christ that Scripture calls us to pursue.